Hello, this is Ian Wolf, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, robots on the water, under the water and playing soccer. But first up, here's the news. Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce announced in Parliament that the government is spending $15 million to eradicate introduced carp from Australian rivers by dumping herpes virus into the rivers. Here's Deputy Prime Minister Joyce speaking in Parliament. The $15 million that we will put towards the eradication of carp, getting the plan going to eradicate carp, we know that it's incredibly important because we are afflicted in this nation, we are afflicted with this disgusting, mud-sucking creatures, bottom-dwelling, mud-sucking creatures, bottom-dwelling, mud-sucking creatures, for which the only form of control is a version of herpes to try and get rid of these disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. But we don't want to have to deal with carp. No, we don't want to deal with carp. We've got to get rid of the carp. Because when we've dealt with this, when we've dealt with this virus, do you know, Mr Speaker, that we're going to have between 500,000 and 2 million tonnes of carp? 2 million tonnes of carp. We're going to have to bury the carp. We're going to have to put it outside, put it in the paddocks, bury it, put, put it underground, probably take the, take the place of horse manure or something. We on the coalition are going to make sure that we have a healthy river and a healthy economy because we're going to get rid of the carp. And now, part two of my day at the Australian Biology of Ageing conference held at the Coogee Lifesaving Club in Sydney. Lifesaving. Yunting Monica Lam from the Heart Research Institute at the University of Sydney talked about how, as we age, progenitor cells from bone marrow can't move as easily to where they're needed in the body, to grow into new blood vessels. Stem cells become progenitor cells, which can then only grow into a limited number of types of new cells. She's investigating therapies to improve mobilisation so new blood cells can grow and people can suffer less heart and artery disease. Paul Coleman talked about how the Centenary Institute has discovered that when a type of cell lining blood vessels, endothelial cells, become senescent, they resist inflammation. This anti-inflammatory cell is associated with the activity of the gene ARHGAP18. 
the Centenary Institute were able to show that this gene helps protect the integrity of blood vessels and arteries against blockages and breaks, and also against inflammatory diseases. This discovery may point the way to therapies that supplement the action of this gene. Abhir Das from the University of New South Wales talked about how failure of the endothelial cells lining the tiny blood vessels, the capillaries, in skeletal muscles causes a decline in people's capacity for exercise after middle age. At the University of New South Wales, they found that the sirtuin genes that regulate energy production in cells' mitochondria, which are regulated by molecules of NAD+, also controls the growth of new capillaries from exercise, and thus people's capacity for exercise. Knocking the sirtuin genes out in mice stopped the mice getting stronger from exercise, and made them lose the ability to exercise as they aged more quickly. They treated old mice with a compound called nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NMN, that the body converts into NAD+. Previously, NMN has been shown to improve the energy levels of old mice, and now it's shown to also restore the ability of old mice to exercise, and to go stronger from exercise to the levels of young mice, with an increase in the formation of capillaries. This suggests that the loss of exercise capacity and the failure to respond to exercise that happened from middle age onwards may be completely reversible. The videos of the old mice and the old mice treated by NMN on the exercise treadmills was amazing. The old mice were restored to the levels of exercise performed by young mice with an NMN dose of 300 milligrams per kilo per day. I wonder if NMN might have a similar benefit in people with chronic fatigue syndrome who have a reduced exercise capacity and who don't get stronger with exercise. Brian Morris from Sydney University spoke about the discovery of a variation of the FOXO3 gene that's associated with people who live to an age 95 and older. People with the GG allele of the FOXO3 gene had 10% less risk of dying overall due to fewer deaths from coronary artery disease. They suspect the gene is causing a reduction in infection and inflammation. Justin St. John from the Hudson Institute of Medical Research talked about a way to make an older woman's eggs fertile again. As women get older, their eggs become less fertile. Mitochondrial DNA taken from a woman's own unused eggs and inserted into her eggs at the same time as in vitro fertilization takes place improves fertility. Hayden Homer from the University of Queensland talked about how production of egg cells go through a particular cycle that is broken by the inhibition of the sirtuin 2 gene caused by a decline in the cofactor NAD+, as women reach their late 30s. This means that fewer oocytes mature into eggs as women age, and that targeting NAD+, may be a suitable therapy. Dave Listigiono from the University of New South Wales spoke about how increasing the expression of sirtuin 2 preserves the quality and fertility of eggs in mice despite aging. Once again, targeting NAD plus to activate sirtuin 2 will be a target for treatment. Judy Ford from the University of South Australia spoke about how her investigations into how women's reproductive aging accelerates from the age of 37 led her to insights about whole body aging in women. A decrease in fertility and an increase in Down syndrome babies led her to an analysis of the way the body metabolizes fatty acids. At about age 37, the telomere limit is reached where the gene P53 is activated, 
and fatty acid synthase is switched off. This stops effective fat metabolism. In the ovaries, fat metabolism is regulated by the hormone DHEA. Judy found that giving DHEA therapy early stops the loss of the ability to properly metabolise fats. Metformin, the drug being used to treat type 2 diabetes, also helps regulate fat metabolism. Supplementing the diet with evening primrose oil also helps. I'll be speaking with Judy Ford in depth about this work next week. Get up early when the sleeping pill wakes me. I take a wake up pill and fill with energy. I power on hard and I check my messages. But I don't have any messages. I take a driving pill and head to my car. I drive around a bit because work isn't very far. I call my phone and I check my messages. But I don't have any messages. All I know is driving on drugs feels better when they're prescription. All I know is the world looks beautiful. The world looks so damn beautiful. Fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now. I feel fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now, right now. Work is anything but quiet these days. I try to medicate my concentration aids. I can see the day unfold in front of me So I take the stairs and hit the gym The phone is ringing when I get to my desk What was the sting and now a sharp pain in my chest So I take a calm and next and just chill And then it's time for lunch again All I know is work is easy When you don't stress out about deadlines All I know is I take my medicine I always take my medicine Fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now. I feel fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now, right now, right now. was I Feel Fantastic by Jonathan Coulton. You can hear more of Jonathan Coulton's music at jonathancoulton.com. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. 
We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. I went to the CBIT Computer Fair at Sydney Olympic Park last week and my eye was caught by the amazing technology at the University of Newcastle stand. I spoke with Jarrah Petty, a research assistant at the University of Newcastle. I began by asking him, what is the Robot X competition? The Robot X is a student competition to foster innovation and research into unmanned surface vessels, so vessels, so robotic boats that travel without any human interaction. What does it take to get involved? takes a university uh, you basically have to apply to the <laughs> apply to the organ organizers and they basically provide a, a stipend and a boat for you to basically instrument and basically if you're involved with the University of Newcastle we're open to all students who want to get involved and are there limitations on the sort of robot boats that can be entered yeah so all teams get the same hull the same basic uh, chassis to that they then have to instrument and put their own sensors and motors if they wish batteries and all the rest of it to make the boat actually drive around and accomplish tasks. What sort of task does the boat have to accomplish? The main task is a uh, navigation and path planning task. So there are several objects that are placed on the water, different colours and shapes, and the robot has to, robotic boat has to detect them and then behave in a way depending on what it detects. So if it detects a green object, it has to move counterclockwise around it. If it detects a red object, it has to move clockwise around it, and so on and so forth. It does other things too. There's an underwater sonar detection task, so it's equipped with hydrophones to basically detect some acoustic pingers which are placed underwater and then deactivated at random. It has to detect which pingers are deactivated. It also has to accomplish uh, underwater vision tasks. So there's an underwater task to detect things placed under, under the water and also detect objects placed underwater uh, at a distance. And what sort of system, what sort of programming and hardware do most people choose for these sort of tasks? I'm not sure what most people have chosen. What we're going with this year is the Intel NUC-based platform, so it's a standard off-the-shelf PC that you can buy. It's actually going to run five of them, so it'll have four cameras and one Intel NUC to do the real-time video collection and processing of video data, and then one to do the interface. As far as hardware goes, it has two electric outboard motors uh, that are attached to rudders that we can actuate. The cameras, we're going to replace the cameras this year, um, but they're a fairly standard, pretty much a web camera with a Sony CCD sensor in them and a fisheye lens to get a full 192 degree field of vision per camera. So with four cameras, you can see all the way around the boat with the fisheye lenses. Yeah. And is there any particular operating system that you're running for the robots? All the NUCs will probably run Ubuntu. And the programming language? Programming language will probably be C++. I believe, yep. And when does the competition run this year? Our competition runs in December, so for 10 days, uh, starting December 20th. So hopefully we'll be over in Hawaii for Christmas, which shouldn't be too bad. Is the event going to be live streamed? Yes, it will be. Uh, so it'll be simulcast on the, on the web, so everyone, everyone around the world can see it. Do you know if there's any links to last year's? Yes, there is. If you search on YouTube for just for our, our boat, uh, UON Robotex, um, you'll find a whole bunch of YouTube videos from, from our competition. And also, if you just Google search Robotex, you'll find a whole heap of uh, information from the last competition and, and this competition that's coming up. And if people want to find your work online, where do they look? Just Google UON Robotex, and our uh, website will come up, which is a page on the, on the University of Newcastle's website. So we have an 
underwater robot. What's it called? It is an AUV, or uh, Autonomous Underwater Vehicle. So it's designed in a similar way to the ASV, Autonomous Surface Vehicle, designed to operate completely autonomously underwater. How long can it go for underwater? Depends on what you're doing, maybe 20 minutes to an hour, something like that, depending on what you're doing. It was basically developed as a, as a research platform, so the overall performance of what it can do wasn't a, wasn't a priority. And when you say autonomous, how autonomous is it? So this was developed as a research platform, as I said. It's got basically the orange thing on the front there, which is what's called a DVL, a Doppler Velocity Logger. So it sends out a sound wave and that hits the ocean floor and it reflects and it comes back Doppler shifted if you're moving at a certain velocity. So knowing the frequency at which you sent it and measuring the frequency at which it returned, you can get a, a measurement relative, relative to, the, to the ocean floor. So it also has what's called an IMU on it, inertial measurement unit, and it was, as I said, developed as a research platform to fuse the information from the DVL and the IMU uh, to prolong sensor drift. IMUs are prone to sensor drift, so if you're underwater, um, they'll, you'll get an estimate of how fast you're going, but it won't be quite right, and then over time, those errors will build up um, until you, you can no longer know where you are, which is obviously a problem. So it does have GPS and Wi-Fi on the fins. GPS doesn't work underwater. So basically, if you're above water, it can operate completely autonomously and know where it is, sort of defeats the purpose of being a, an underwater vehicle. But so when you're above water, you can sort of get an idea of where you are, and then you can go underwater and uh, exist there for a, a prolonged period of time because of the extra information from the, from the Doppler velocity logger, as well as the IMUs. How does it report back home? It doesn't. <laughs> Uh, so it's designed completely autonomously. It basically, a lot of these things with these autonomous craft is they just don't have any real contact with the home base because that sort of defeats the purpose. So it does have Wi-Fi, as I said, so it can communicate over Wi-Fi back home and, and report certain information if it's above water. Have any marine biologists tried to make use of it? Not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> Maybe some will. <laughs> well, yes, I'm just thinking, uh, surely for sort of surveying the ocean floor or coral reefs or collecting samples at a certain depth, how deep can it go? Not very deep, it's probably limited by the motors, so it's got five brushless DC waterproof motors on the outside, but obviously the waterproofing on those isn't going to be super, super robust, so maybe 20, 30 metres is its overall uh, diving depth, but obviously that's not too hard to change with some better, with some more waterproof gear. And have you fitted a camera to see how it's going? No, we haven't. It's just, it was just basically equipped with those things uh, to test to test this new algorithm in, in sensor fusion. And what's the next step? Next step is basically, ah, oh yeah, we've got Mark Gibson, who isn't here, had to go back to Newcastle. Uh, he's just started his PhD. He works for the company that, that built this underwater craft, UVS, uh, and also has just started uh, his PhD with them doing research into underwater systems and sensor fusion. So the next step, will he'll probably be taking it over at some point or he'd like to and basically equipping it with some new some new instrumentation some new sensors and um, doing his research on on various things on it for people wanting to find information about this particular vehicle online probably look up uvs's website underwater vehicle systems again if you just google them their website will come up and they're the they're the people to uh, look at well jared petty thank you very much no worries thank you that was Jarrah Petty from the University of Newcastle talking about the Robot X competition and the Autonomous Underwater Vehicle Project. And finally, I spoke with Jake Fountain, 
a PhD computing science student from the University of Newcastle. I began by asking him to explain his out-of-body experience, telepresence, setup. That involves a virtual reality headset hooked up to a robot with a camera on it. And which virtual reality headset? We're using the Oculus Rift Dev Kit 2 at the moment. And what sort of robot? It's a humanoid Darwin OP robot, open platform, modified with a, a new variant camera that is slightly better than the default camera. Do people wearing the headset drive the robot around? Yep, so the, the headset tracks the head position or the orientation of the, the user's head and maps that to the robot's head and the robot mimics what the user is doing and then the vision from the camera of the robot is sent through to the, the headset. And how immersive is that? How convincing is it that you are where the robot is? I find it quite immersive. It's, the robot only has a small field of view compared to the Oculus Rift headset. So what we do is we draw the current view in a small window in front of the user and then as they move around we save previous views to give the illusion of a larger field of view. And I've sat, sat in viewing from the robot's perspective for 10 minutes or so and I, I forget where I am. I forget that I'm not sitting where I am and that I, I feel like I'm sitting where the robot is. I get a real sense of presence. So there's more to it than just hooking up a remote video camera over a network to the Oculus Rift. Yeah, there is. There's some, there's some careful graphics and timing going on. So along with the image coming from the robot, we include metadata, including the robot's head position at that time. And we make sure that we draw the image where it was seen rather than where the user's current head pose is. That way it avoids motion sickness and it compensates for the latency of the robot time it takes for your head movement to get to the robot and the robot to replicate the movement. So that's the way you get around the time delay for the signal to go between the camera or between the robot and you? Yeah, the screen sort of drags behind your head movement depending on how fast the network is. What sort of future developments do you have in mind for this? So we're looking at going to stereoscopic, so right now it's monoscopic camera. Going to stereoscopic would present some difficult challenges because that sort of dragging of the view behind that will not really work if you roll your head um, because the two eyes have to be parallel so there's some challenges there going to stereoscopic but that's something we want to do we also want to go to translational movement so allowing the robot to allowing you to translate your head and the robot to copy that and also adding in additional limbs so adding in arms and adding legs by tracking the user and then mapping that to the robot what sort of environments can the robot move around in? So the robots play autonomous soccer, so that would be one application. But I mean, they could, they could be deployed anywhere, theoretically. So you could both have someone just piggybacking on a robot that's choosing how it's going to move, as well as having someone drive the robot? Absolutely, yeah. So we can even test our code against uh, human, humans playing as robots, with the same limitations as robots. That sounds like a whole new sport. Yeah, yeah. I, I considered pushing for it as a RoboCup competition of itself because it's actually quite challenging to, to get the system set up so that people can immersively play with limited hardware. What would you call it? Probably telesoccer, I guess. That sounds pretty good. So you could have two teams of telesoccer players on equally remote places so they're on the same lag yeah. operating little robots to play soccer. Yeah, absolutely. Or people playing autonomous robots. Yeah, yeah. We could, you'd have both 
and then maybe do a Turing test and see who it can tell who's playing robots and who, who's playing humans. Because you've got the view from the robots, it sounds like something that might work as a spectator sport on TV. Yeah, it, it absolutely could. You could have some kind of extreme sport where the robots, uh, maybe, maybe when the robots become a bit more sophisticated because people like their sports to be, you know, you don't want to see robots falling down all the time and stuff. So, you know, in the future though, it could be quite a spectator sport, yeah. What other sort of uses for the telepresence robots have you thought about? So one of my f- pet favourites is the idea of an alternative to Skype or other teleconferencing systems. Whenever you use Skype, you, your uh, partner is always looking at their screen and they never really make eye contact with you. And I really hate that. So instead we give them a body in terms of forms of the robot and you can see where they move their head because the robot mimics where they're moving their head. So if they're looking at you and talking to you, you get that extra channel of communication. And you can sort of make eye contact with the robot almost. Even though you're looking at a camera, you still get the, the, same, the same sort of feeling. Well, Jake Fountain, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Jake Fountain from the University of Newcastle talking about his telepresence system. I tried it out after the interview, and the feeling that you were sitting where the robot sat was overwhelming. I was able to turn my robot head and see the back of my human head. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords, so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.